All right. Tonight we have the privilege of working through the book of Jonah together. Jonah is probably the best known of the 12 minor prophets. And there's a couple of other unique features that are worth mentioning right off the bat. Along with Micah, Jonah is the only other prophet from the 12 who is named in the historical books of the Old Testament, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles. A lot of the prophets we've been looking at, Obadiah and Nahum that we looked at last week, we have no connective tissue with the rest of uh, the rest of the story of Israel, and so we have to put together the clues to figure out when they were alive, when they ministered, from the details of the messages that they bring. But Jonah is directly referenced uh, in the book of Second Kings, and so um, let's let's go ahead and and start there tonight. And so here in 2 Kings, in chapter 14, we have a cameo from our prophet tonight, from our prophet Jonah. Here in 2 Kings chapter 14, look at verse 25. It says that uh, Jeroboam, in verse 24, that would be Jeroboam the second a king over the northern tribes of Israel, verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Okay. Jonah, the son of Amittai, as we'll see, is the same person from the book of Jonah, and we find out here that he was a known prophet in Israel. In fact, he was a verified prophet, okay? This will become important when we get to the book of Jonah itself, but back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says that the way that you will recognize that someone who claims to be a prophet speaks for me is when his predictions come true. And so here, Jonah had prophesied that during the days of Jeroboam, the boundaries or the borders of Israel would be expanded, and that's exactly what happened, okay? And so when we turn to Jonah, this, you know, malcontent prophet who runs from the Lord, we need to recognize that he is the only example of, in Scripture of a faithful, proven prophet of God in abject disobedience, now, we find the opposite in Scripture. Think of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Here is a false teacher from another religion who truly prophesies, right? That's not his intention. His plan is to curse Israel, but the Spirit comes upon him, and he gives a real word, both blessing Israel and speaking of a messianic prophecy uh, that would be to come, okay? And so in the same way that God uses Balaam's donkey, God has no problem using Balaam. But when we open up to the book of Jonah, we need to recognize his status as prophet is not questioned. He is a known prophet, and to be honest, based on this one message we have of him, probably a well-liked one. His message was pro-Israel. 
God is going to bless Israel and expand our borders, defeat our enemies, give us back some of the land that was taken. And the people say, Amen. Right? Unlike many of the prophets that we read about during this time, he doesn't bring a message of judgment or warning. A very positive message. Okay? And so that's the same Jonah. And there's uh, two more notes that I want to make about this uh, passage here in 2 Kings, one right now and the other we'll revisit later, but I want you to recognize that this expansion that Jonah prophesies happens in the days of Jeroboam II. Now, is Jeroboam II a good king or a bad king? He is a certifiably bad king. On your own time, just go back and read right in that chapter, and you will see that he is a king that displeases the Lord. And so the fact that God does this expanding of Israel's boundaries is an abundant act of grace during the reign of a wicked king, during a time where Israel is unfaithful as a people, okay? Um, The other note we'll return to later, but let's go ahead and open up Jonah here in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, right? That's the same person we just encountered, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay. And so we begin here with a commissioning. Not a commissioning like Isaiah chapter 6 or Jeremiah chapter 1, where someone who has never carried a prophecy before becomes a prophet. But a commissioning with a certain message for a certain people, and God sends Jonah. Okay. Now, here, it's worth pointing out the other thing that's unique of the 12 prophets about Jonah, and that's the fact that Jonah is almost entirely narrative. I've said week after week for the last few weeks uh, that we know very little about the life or the happenings of the prophets. We only have their message. The emphasis is on the message. But here, the only message that Jonah gives in this book is five words in Hebrew, 40 days and then judgment. That's it. The rest of the book is narrative. It's an account of Jonah's life. This book is semi-biographical. It focuses more on the prophet than the message. And again, that is unique in the midst of the 12. Whereas we have lots of biographical material in the book of Jeremiah, in the minor prophets, again, usually we just have an introductory sentence. So we know that Hosea took a wife. We know that his wife was unfaithful. That's about it. We know that Amos was a shepherd and that he also did something with fig trees. That's it, right? But with Jonah, we have an entire four-chapter biographical account. In fact, if you wanted to connect the narrative of Jonah to a similar place in Scripture, you would naturally think of the ministry of Elijah and Elisha right? Where it's not just a message of the Lord, but a messenger. A messenger goes from here to here who sees God's hand in nature, right? We, we you know, know Jonah and, and the big fish or the whale here, but when you look at Elijah's life, we also see God using animals. Remember, Elijah is fed by crows for a long period of time, right? This is at its finest, not a collection of oracles, a book of prophecy, but Hebrew narrative. In fact, people who study such things would say that Jonah is the best example of Hebrew narrative in all of the Old Testament. It is the high watermark of how Hebrews told stories, 
how the Jews communicated their history. Another one that's right up there would be the life of Joseph. Right? And so what I mean when I say that it's a high example of Hebrew narrative is this is so intricately put together. It's literature par excellence. Okay? It is intentionally leaning on all of the format and feature of Hebrew narrative to great effect. And it's very easy for us to miss that because, let me remind you, none of us are Jewish. Okay? And so uh, I'll try and draw that out as we go along. Um, but, but that's kind of where the power in the book of Jonah comes from, is, is in the way that it achieves its goal literarily, okay? So, for example, notice that verse 2 says, Arise, go out to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, here's one of the things that makes Jonah especially interesting to an original Hebrew audience. The word there for evil is much more broad than our English word evil. Evil in English always implies moral, right? There is a moral emphasis to the word evil. It's not just a bad thing that happened, it's an evil thing, right? In Hebrew, this word is used so broadly that uh, if somebody has trouble, it's this word, okay? When it says that disaster comes upon a city, it says evil, evil befell the city. That doesn't mean that there's an attacker or even some sort of malicious intent, necessarily. The word is broader than that, and that brings a level of ambiguity to it. So notice how much it changes the story if we read verse 2 there. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their trouble has come up before me. Okay. Now, right now, I'm just laying the groundwork for things that become interesting later. But we need to know that when you read this in the Hebrew, it doesn't hit you over the head with those wicked Ninevites. Okay. Not necessarily. There's a, there's a generalness here. There is a reason that is given, but the reason could be a problem. It could be a trouble. It could be an impending disaster, or it could be a sentencing. You are an evil people, but it's not stated clearly. Okay. Now, notice how verse 3 opens with the word, but. Okay. That should be surprising to us. Like many familiar stories, whether it's from the flannel graph or just from the, you know, the cultural artifacts of growing up in a Christian-related world and knowing the story of Jonah, we know where this is going. But you have to suspend that for a second. You have to think about this. You have to read it as if it's the first time. You have to, you know, remember to forget that Bruce Willis is dead, right? You have to remove the surprise ending. And so here we have the normal standard pattern. God called a prophet, gave him a message and a mission, and what's supposed to happen next? And the prophet went. In fact, notice he says, arise, Jonah, verse 3, but Jonah rose, okay, step one, no problem, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish is one of those geographical places that Bible critics argue about because it's far enough away that we can't be confident what place it actually represents in the Jewish mind. Okay. The most likely guess is Spain. So Israel sits right on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. Spain would be the outlet of the western side of the Mediterranean. You know, in, in a usual ancient history sense, usual life, the other end of the earth. 
okay? As far away as you can imagine, because what's past Spain? The Pacific Ocean, which seems to be limitless, okay? So the other thing you need to know is that Nineveh is directly east and a long way east, thousands of miles east of Israel, okay? So him getting on a boat here and heading west is literally going the wrong way, okay? But notice again, and this is one of the features of Hebrew narrative, his motive isn't stated. It doesn't say, but Jonah, because he felt this or because he thought this, all we have here is the bare naked action, okay? Again, ambiguity. We are trained, because we're familiar with the story, to, to preload why he is doing this. But we don't actually find that out till chapter 4. Okay. All we see now is, surprise, surprise, a prophet who hears the call, and not only does he not do it, but he tries to go in the opposite direction to do something, to get away, to go to Tarshish. Okay, now here's another thing that I want you to keep track of as I read here. I want you to watch for the word down, okay? One of the things that happens in Hebrew literature uh, are patterns. And one of the patterns here in Jonah chapter 1 and extending into chapter 2 is a descent, okay? So although we talked about him heading west instead of east, what we're really going to see is him heading down, and down and down and down. So notice verse 3. Jonah rose to flee up to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board, or literally again, down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, hear the repetition there? Why is he traveling in this way? To get away from the presence of the Lord. Okay. But, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Okay, and so he's on the ship. The ship gets out into the Mediterranean. A storm comes, and it's a big one, right? It's one that threatens to tear the ship itself apart. But notice the origin of the storm again in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind. Another thing I want you to watch for every time we start reading tonight is all the things that God does. He is incredibly active in the story of Jonah. Basically, nothing happens unless God does it, okay? And so the first thing we see is that God sends a storm. He literally hurls it, and we'll see that word repeated over and over again. The mariners, okay, the other people on the ship, were afraid, and each cried out to his God, Okay. Joppa is in the land of Israel, but it's a port town, and like many port towns, is more metropolitan. So all of these sailors are worshipers of other gods from other places. Okay. And so they see this storm, and they begin to, in their own religions, cry out to their own gods to deliver them. And then notice, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Okay. I'm sure we've all seen that in the movies, right? You, you make the boat more buoyant uh, so, that the, so that the storm isn't so threatening. But, I, but notice that word hurled, right? The Lord hurled a storm, and then they hurled the stuff off the boat. Okay? That's an intentional use of the same word. Okay? But Jonah had done what? Gone down into the inner part of the ship. Okay? So he goes down to Joppa, 
and then he goes down onto the deck of the ship, and then he goes down into the center of the ship, right? He is on a downward trajectory here. He'd gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep, okay? Now, one of the temptations when we study bad guys in the Bible is to criticize their every action. And so it's easy here to go, look at Jonah, he's just asleep while everybody else is freaking out. But I don't really think you can say very much about this except that he's a deep sleeper. If anything, it does say that he has some level of confidence that this whole escape plan is going to go fine, right? And so notice, though, and this is important, verse 6, the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Okay. Now, there's irony here, and this is another thing that Hebrews love to take, make use of. There's irony here in the fact that the prophet of Israel is being called on to call upon his God. Right? Take, for instance, in contrast, Paul's terrible storm while he's on a ship in the book of Acts. There, he gathers everybody's attention and says, I've prayed to God and he's promised the safety of everybody on board. But Jonah's just sleeping. And when he is woken up, he's woken up by a pagan who says, hey, get to work. Be more religious. Our lives are on the line. But there's more than that. Notice the language again. Arise, call out to your God. Arise and call out are word for word the commission that God gave Jonah. Arise and call out to Nineveh about the evil, about the Nara. Okay. And so here it's as if he can't escape the call. You know, you can imagine as he's coming to and it's like he's having a nightmare about this call that he was given. And then notice, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. The ancient world was, was very religious in a way that the modern world isn't. Okay. We tend to look for cause and effect, and so we would check a weather report. But in the ancient world, there was always a connection between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. There was always a connection between good things that happen and bad things that happen and the judgment of the gods who were watching. Okay? There was always the possibility of offending or appeasing a god and that playing out very specifically in your life. And so they look at this storm, they recognize their life is on the line, and they think, this is somebody's fault. And let me just remind you, they're right. They know instinctually that something is wrong and casting lots is a way of discerning the will of the gods, right? And if, uh, you know, we don't know how casting lots was always done, but you can think of it like drawing the short straw and it would still pull off the same thing. It's, it's an opening up and saying, okay, if you want to show us what's going on here, show us. Okay. But notice they cast the lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, Proverbs reminds us that we cast our lots into the lap, but God directs the meaning of it, okay? In other words, what happens here is not coincidence. God is driving, and he lays his finger on Jonah. We see the same thing in the book of Joshua, right? When Achan has hidden something in his tent, 
And so when Israel goes out after the battle of Jericho against Ai and they are routed, and God speaks to Joshua and he says, the reason is because there is unconfessed sin in the camp. And so they draw lots, first by tribe, then by family, then by household, and then the person in the household, Achan, right? It's, it's drawn in. And so the same thing happens here. In verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now notice, they don't assume here that Jonah is the culprit. They assume that he's the mouthpiece for what's going on, right? They don't say, All right, Jonah, what have you done? They said, Do you have some sort of insight on what's going on? And then notice, they ask them some questions. What's your occupation, prophet? Where do you come from, Israel? What is your country, okay, Israel? And of what people are you? You're the Hebrews. Now watch as Jonah responds, and notice which one he misses. Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? Now what doesn't he tell them? His occupation. It's kind of an awkward point at this point. I am a prophet. He doesn't say that. He leaves that off the table. And clearly, it wasn't on the manifest. Right? Jonah didn't come into this ship and say, hey, I'm a prophet, I work for God, and I'm going to this place. He came under the guise of anonymity. Right? He came hiding out and not wanting people to know who he was or why he was there. But here he is outed. And then notice it says that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Most of the ancient Near East religions believed that there was a territorial nature to a God's power. So the gods only had jurisdiction over their land or their country or their people or their mountain or their sea or those types of things. Jonah here, by recognizing that he serves the God as revealed in the Old Testament and identifying him as the Lord of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, is communicating monotheism in a polytheistic world. Okay? He's basically saying, I serve the most important God who made everything. Okay? There's no limit to his jurisdiction, so no surprise, verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. Again, in their pagan understanding, if there's a God you don't want to offend, it's this one. Okay. The sea and the dry land makes this you know, uh, consequence, this circumstance of the storm, inescapable. Okay. And so they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, I would suggest to you that that statement is delayed information for us by only a few moments. So again, I would suggest Jonah didn't put on the manifest, I'm buying a ticket to run from God, okay? Instead, in this conversation, he explains the whole thing, but it's delayed just a moment so that it will be delayed for us. And so we discover here that they discover, and it's like we discover with them. Okay, so now here, let's put together the math. It's relatively simple. A storm that is threatening the whole ship is happening because Jonah has been disobedient from a God who owns everything. Okay, now they have to decide what to do. And so, verse 11, they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? 
for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said, pick me up and hurl, there's that word again, me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Okay, so basically he says, the storm is after me. This is my punishment. Just throw me into the sea. But we need to understand here, this is not Jonah being sacrificial on behalf of these people he's endangered. If he wanted to save their lives, he could repent, right? He would rather die than obey. This is not sacrifice for other people. This is suicide. This is still Jonah being stubborn. He'll take the storm that God rages, and so he just says, just throw me Throw me into the sea and it will be fine. But notice verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Okay, So they, they don't want to throw Jonah into the sea. They don't want to sacrifice his life. And so they fight against the storm, but there's no point in it. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord. Now notice who they're praying to now. Not their gods. They call out to the God, the one that Jonah revealed to them, which again is a little bit awkward because Jonah is running from this God and yet he is a successful representative of Yahweh. There's a similar encounter that happens between Abraham and Abimelech in the book of Genesis. Abraham has this habit of trying to save his own skin by convincing his tremendously beautiful wife not to identify as his wife, but as his sister. And there is no positive way to spin this. Because the only thing that could happen next is that she would be taken, since she's clearly not attached to anyone, into another relationship and Abraham's life would be spared. He is just trying to save his own skin. And that's exactly what happens. Abimelech, the ruler over this area, sees Sarah, finds she's very beautiful, finds she's unattached, and tries to integrate her into the harem. But God's watching out for Sarah. And so he wakes Abimelech up in the middle of the night and says, if you keep this woman, your whole household will be sterile. And so he speaks back to this God who reveals to himself in his dream, and he goes, hey, wait a minute. How am I morally culpable here? This guy told me it was just his sister. I didn't know anything about this. And God says the craziest thing. He says, give the man back his wife and ask him to pray for you, for he is my prophet. In fact, it's the only place that Abraham is identified as a prophet. Okay. Awkward. Right? So here, he says, here is your wife. And then Abraham has to lay his hands on the guy whose life he just put at risk, his, you know, his lineage he just put at risk, and he is the representative of this same God. Okay. That's what's happening here with Jonah, and I want you to remember it, because one of, what, one of the things we're going to see in this is everybody is more receptive to the God of heaven and earth than Jonah. And it starts with these rough-shod, super-pagan sailors. And so they pray here, and notice what they pray. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now that statement, you Lord have done as you please, is very orthodox. Okay, if you were to turn to Psalm 115 verse 3 or Psalm 135 verse 6, you'll see it word for word. Okay, they're not bringing their impositions on God from their own pagan understanding. They get it right. They know that this storm is God-driven 
And they know that the reason they can't escape it is because God won't let them escape it. And so they say, all right, we're going to throw Jonah in the sea, but let us not perish for this man's life. They don't want to count as murderers. They're going to throw a man in the sea in a, in a moment that means guaranteed death. But that's against their conscience. And it's against morality. And so we find out here, they've been trying to avoid that. They see that it can't. And so they, kind of like Abimelech, say, let us maintain our innocence here. Okay, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him, there's the last time, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Okay. Confirmation. Just as Jonah said, just as they expected, as soon as Jonah hits the water, the sea goes still. Okay. But apparently, as we'll see in a moment, Jonah sinks like a stone. Okay. But notice this in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay. Now, one, does this mean that they offered a sacrifice right there on the ship? Probably not. In fact, when it says here that they made vows, the idea here is that they put on the calendar a plan to worship this God. Okay. When the journey is over, we're going to make a pilgrimage. Okay. In fact, the language that's used here, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, is not just a recognition of God's power. It's the normal language for Gentiles who become worshipers of Yahweh, Old Testament and New. Right? If you read the New Testament in the book of Acts, it talks about uh, Paul going into the synagogue, and then it says, and those who feared God, those are Gentile converts. Okay? It's how Cornelius is identified, as one who fears the Lord. Okay? So again, disobedient prophet gets everybody in trouble, successfully leads a whole group of Gentiles to the, to the God of gods, to the Lord of lords. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, a couple of things here. First, again, I want you to notice here that God is in control. Where does this fish come from? He's appointed by God. Just like Jonah was, except the fish does what he was supposed to. God is orchestrating. He is sovereign. Everything that happens, happens at God's hand, right? The sailors got it right. You do whatever pleases you. Second, although I think we would all agree, and, and the word here again is, is a big, broad word for the word fish. It's not a word that we would translate whale, but it could be. In fact, it's a word that you could translate sea monster. It's a word that you would literally translate sea creature, okay? Go back to the book of Genesis where it talks about the birds of the air and the animals of the land and the fish of the sea, right? That word fish includes all sea life. So does this word, okay? We're not given really any focal point on, on what type of thing happens here, just that a sea creature swallows Jonah. And here's the point. This is not a punishment. This is salvation. Right? If God wanted to punish Jonah, he would have let him drown. And we'll see that Jonah gets this when we get to chapter 2. Okay? But here, Jonah is delivered by this great fish. 
He's there for three days and three nights, and then, as we'll see, he's vomited up safe and sound on dry ground. Verse 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, Okay, what do you do when you're stuck in a fish for three days and three nights? For Jonah, he composes a psalm. Okay? And I want you to notice that it's a very specific type of psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, or more specifically, a psalm of deliverance. Here, he rejoices in the fact that God has saved him. Okay. So notice what he says, verse 1 here. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Okay. Belly of she- Sheol is doing two things there at once. One, it's making a reference to the place of the dead. Okay. The place where people go after they die. And in Jewish reckoning, this is the people who do not know God. Okay? And so he's recognizing here not just that death was his desert, but that he, he's dying disobedient. Right? But second here, obviously, out of the belly of Sheol is a, is a recognition that he is sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? And so he says, and you heard my voice, for you, I want you to notice the pronouns here, for you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Okay. This is not deliverance from generic trouble. This is deliverance from judgment. Okay. We know that the storm was sent he knows that it's what he deserved. He is disobedient. He cries out nonetheless for God to spare him, and he does so. Verse 4, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's the final descent, right? Presumably, he didn't physically hit the seafloor in the middle of the Mediterranean. But poetically, he reaches the bottom of his journey here, you know, the bottom of the barrel. He bottoms out, you know, in, in the way that we talk about when, when an addict finally comes to the end of himself, right? This is the lowest point of Jonah's life, geographically and spiritually, okay? He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then notice verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He makes a contrast here. A very classic one in the Psalms, a contrast between the living God and the empty idols, right? A contrast between the God who actually helps because he's actually there and the other things that people worship, okay? And so he contrasts here. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he recognizes here that God has saved him. He recognizes here uh, that that's because God is real. And he contrasts that 
with the worship of idols. But I want you to notice something that we should flag. Look at the, at the end of this. He says, he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Notice this isn't just a distinction between God and idols. It's a distinction between idol worshipers and Jonah. Do you see that? He says, they trust in vain idols, but I, and then ironically, what does it say he's going to do? I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Sound familiar? That's exactly what the so-called idol-worshipping sailors did in response to God as well. Okay. What I would suggest to you is here, Jonah has a severe and obvious encounter with divine grace. He does not deserve to be alive. He is a covenant breaker. He has been disobedient to God and, and stubbornly to the death disobedient. Okay? And then he kind of wakes up to the reality of his circumstances, cries out for help, and God saves him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's not just something Jonah proclaims, it's something he lived. Right? He knows it personally now. He experiences it. But in verse 8 and 9, it's hard to feel like we don't see that there's still some sort of underlying root. Okay. Jonah has an encounter with God, but the question becomes, has Jonah changed? Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Okay. So here he finds himself. Now, this is another thing that is really significant in Hebrew literature that's easy for us to miss because we're bad readers. We've completely forgotten how to read books, okay? But one of the things that's most important to Hebrew literature is structure. And one of the amazing things about the book of Jonah is that it has two even halves that are presented as mirror images of themselves, okay? So, for example, in chapter 1, Jonah is called, given a message, he goes, Gentiles respond. In chapter 3, Jonah is called, given a message, he goes, Gentiles respond. In chapter 2, Jonah speaks with God. In chapter 4, God speaks with Jonah. Okay? There's an intentional paralleling of the book. But the easiest place to see this without having to kind of look at the whole thing is just to look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. What is that? It's chapter 1, verse 1. In fact, the language is almost word for word, except with the addition of a second time. Okay. It's a, a restart. It's a new beginning. Okay. And it puts us back at square one. And so the same prophet after unsuccessfully trying to run from God's presence, is given the same calling to the same people with the same message. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Okay. This time he obeys. This time he goes. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, it seems like when he says here it's an exceedingly great city, he's not talking about the walled city of Nineveh, but the greater Nineveh area, right? In other words, I would, accept, uh, I would suggest to you that exceedingly great in this context, 
context is how we would say metropolitan. Okay. It's a recognition that Nineveh at this time during the days of Jeroboam, which by the way is before Israel is destroyed, it's before Assyria is a superpower, it's a hundred years before Babylon conquers Assyria, okay? But it is a big and booming city and not just within Nineveh itself, but the suburbs of Nineveh that extend all along the Tyrus and have gr- Tigris and have grown into this big area. He sent to the whole thing, okay? It's as if God said, arise and go to Seattle, but what he actually meant was from Linwood to Renton, okay? That's the idea here, okay? It's three days' journey in breadth. That's walking distance, presumably about 60 miles, okay? It's a large area. So Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, notice how simple, how terse, and how limited his message is. There's no reference of God. There's no call to repentance. It's just a countdown clock. In fact, there's not even any possibility of avoiding this message, right? 40 days and then judgment. That's the whole message. Now, again, we can't overplay our cards here. We can't say clearly Jonah says as little as he possibly can. We don't know that. He was supposed to give a message. God said he'd give him the message. Maybe this is all there is. But in the literary sense, that becomes important. Because notice what happens. Okay. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, I want you to notice one other thing here that seems to be intentional. Go back to what it says in verse 3. It says, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And then it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Okay, so where are we in the timeline? Day one, a maximum of 20 miles in. And what happens? Nineveh responds. He doesn't make it all the way to the other end of the city. It's in the beginning of his ministry that the whole city begins to respond collectively, universally, emotionally, with sackcloth and ashes. In fact, look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock take anything, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. This is, this is above and beyond, right? This isn't just a fast for adults. This is a fast for all human beings. And it's not just a fast for all humans. It's a fast of all of their livestock. In fact, did you notice that the sackcloth and ashes go on the cows as well? Right? There's clearly a picture of thoroughness here. Okay? Of wholehearted, across the community, call to repentance. Okay? And then notice, it's not just an act. Verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that there is in their hands. True repentance. Remember what we saw in Amos? Amos was talking to a people who were totally fine with fasting sackcloth and ashes. 
but wouldn't turn away from their ways. But this is true repentance. It's not just an external show. It's not just an emotional appeal. It's real change. And then notice this in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Does he see this as being a secret formula that will twist God in the direction that they want? No. He knows, as we already saw from the sailors and was repeated in Jonah's psalm, God does whatever he wants. You can't put God in a corner. You can't put him in your pocket. You can't, uh, you know, overwhelm him by accomplishing your own will. But maybe, although we deserve judgment, right, that's a recognition in calling wicked what God calls wicked. That's what we call confession. So there's a confession of sin here. There's a confession of culpability, an expectation of rightly deserved judgment. But maybe God will relent. Maybe God will show mercy. Notice verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that same word there, Nara, God relented of the disaster, also the same word, Nara, that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So when they turned from their evil, God relented of his. But again, remember, the word doesn't always carry a moral connotation. God destroying Nineveh wouldn't have been an evil act. It would have been a just act, but it would have been awful. It would have been destruction. It would have been trouble. It would have been devastation. Same word. So notice here, we can start to draw some parallels. In the same way that Jonah was deserving of judgment, cried out to God, and God relented of that judgment and saved him, so also Nineveh. That pattern is intentional. It's on purpose. But, chapter 4, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. I don't remember how the Hebrew plays out in this sentence, but I'm almost positive that this makes it come off less than it is. He's not disappointed. He is exceedingly displeased. In fact, we're going to see that he is hothead angry. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Now notice this. He is mad because he wasn't surprised. He is mad because God behaved like he thought he would. Nineveh's repentance and God sparing them is the reason he ran. Not declaring the message... Not the danger of being in the midst of the Ninevites. Not the impending judgment, but the possible salvation of the Ninevites. That's the problem. In fact, notice what he says. He says, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now, notice again the irony here he is angry with god because he knew that god is let me read it again merciful slow to anger abounding in steadfast love it's weird isn't it now just a side note because i think this might lift the hood a little bit 
he adds at the end there, and relenting from disaster. The first statement that he makes there when he says, I knew this to be, how does Jonah know that's who God is? Because that's how God reveals himself all the way back in Deuteronomy 34. In fact, as we talked about, I think, last week, that is the most recited passage in all of the Old Testament. We saw it last week in Nahum. We see it in Amos. We see it in Hosea. We find it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We find it repeated in the Psalms over and over again. If you want to know who God is according to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 34 gives you the template. But when Jonah adds, and relenting from disaster, there's only one version of all of those iterations that has that phrase, and it's found in the book of Joel, okay? which is interesting. Because again, as we see all the time, Jonah is not just a writer of Scripture, presumably. I haven't made that case yet, but I will. He's also a reader of Scripture. He's not just a prophet of the Lord. He's a recipient of other prophets. He knows the words of Joel, and he brings them up here. Now, why does that matter? Because if you remember, Joel's prophecy is during a locust plague, and he says, if you do not repent, a great, big, much worse locust is coming by the name of Assyria. Jonah knows that Assyria is God's final plan to bring judgment on his own people. If he could avoid warning them of judgment, if they don't repent, then they don't exist. His concern here is not so much racist, those dirty Ninevites, as it is nationalist. Okay. In the interest of his own people, their self-preservation. Now, like is always the case in resisting God, the logic falls apart. Okay. He couldn't even escape God's presence. The Ninevites being, you know, it doesn't make any sense. There was no avoiding the outcome of Joel. That's what a prophet does. He foretells what God is going to do, and he will do it. Read Isaiah 45, okay? But nonetheless here, he doesn't want to be part. In fact, I would suggest to you that it would be very understandable if Jonah realizes that running from Tarshish, he's not sparing Nineveh, he's just sparing his own involvement. God, you do whatever you want with Nineveh, but I don't want any part of it. He says, I'm angry, I ran away because I knew that you were merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and resenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, he experiences real deliverance in the belly of that whale. He experiences real grace, but he's still the same Jonah. And he finds himself in the same place. He obeys, he goes through the motions, but now he preferred death. He says, take my life, okay? He says, it's better for me to die than to live. And remember, to live with what? To live with the salvation of Nineveh. To live with witnessing you not bringing judgment on the Ninevites. In verse 4, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And one of the things that's really fascinating about God throughout the scriptures is how often he enters into dialogue with his people. Remember, this is an all-knowing, full authority-bearing God. What he doesn't say here is, you have no right to be angry, although he should have, could have. It would have been totally appropriate. He asks Jonah a question. He interrogates Jonah. 
God does the same thing all the way back in Genesis. Adam, where are you? Does God know the answer to that question? What about the next one? Have you eaten of the fruit of which I told you not to eat? Does God know the answer to that question? Why is he going through the motions? For Adam. He's trying to draw confession out of Adam. He enters into dialogue for the sake of, he's operating as, if I could reach forward to Jesus, as a great physician. And this is part of not his diagnosis, but his cure. And so he interrogates Jonah here to challenge Jonah in a place that he knows Jonah doesn't have an answer for. You're so angry, but is it righteous anger? Is it appropriate for you to be angry? Now think of all the answers that we could give that would lead to the implication no. How about the fact that Jonah has already not just experienced this salvation, but personally needed it and cried out for it? Is he different than the Ninevites? Not in the sense of sin equals judgment, God graciously delivers. It's the same story. But he asks him here, do you do well to be angry? Is it right to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. He's acting like a toddler here. He says, I've already argued with you, God. Now I'm going to wait for you to do the right thing and burn it to the ground. And he doesn't have anywhere else to go. He doesn't have anywhere else to be. I will remind you that he's in the middle of a very awful wilderness. Right? He doesn't go into the next town and get a hotel room and watch through binoculars. He is out in the wilderness, so he has to build himself a shelter. This is how committed he is to the end of Nineveh. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Where does this plant come from? God does it. He appoints it, just like he did the fish. Okay? The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. Now, what is the spoken reason What is God's intention, his purpose? Why does he bring up this plant? Just to give comfort to Jonah. Jonah who's mad at him. Jonah who's finally been obedient after being externally disobedient, but is still willfully against God internally. Okay. What is this? Again, it's undeserved grace. God cares for Jonah because God is a caring God, not because Jonah is fun to care for. Verse 7, But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Okay. How does the plant go away? Circumstance? Is it the work of the devil? No. The same God who appointed the plant to miraculously grow up all of a sudden in a day appoints a worm to, to kill it the next Now, if I could just put a paraphrase on that that we've hit over and over again, the Lord does whatever he wills, right? You cannot escape the sovereignty of God in the book of Jonah. It is on every page. Jonah couldn't escape it, and he lived it, right? It is on every page. And so here, the same God who graciously raises up a plant just for Jonah's comfort sends a worm to kill it. Now, I don't think we have to get hyper- ecologically introspective and say, well, 
you know, a worm has to eat and God cares about the worm, so he eats the plant. It, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. As we're going to see, the whole story of this plant is a parable. God asks Jonah, are you right to be angry? And now he makes his defense. And he says, let me show you why you're not right to be angry. In other words, this whole process here is to reveal something about Jonah to himself. And so notice verse 7, When the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This is the Sirocco, okay? It is a known phenomenon. It's an incredibly hot wind. It is so hot, there are medical consequences related to being caught in this storm. In fact, we have a handful of ancient law books that would write off crimes of passion during Sirocco because it's that distressing of you physically. It's like you just lose your mind, okay? And so he goes from discomfort to miraculous provided comfort to miraculous provided great discomfort. That's what's happening here, okay? And so the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, again, do you do well to be angry? But notice here, he specifies it. First, it was, do you do well to be angry about Nineveh? Now it's, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die, right? There's no other way to read that sentence. He is at the end of his rope. He doesn't think it through. He, he argues his case and he says, if you'll forgive me the language, you're damn right I am, right? He is self-justifying to the core. How could you do this to me? That plant was so good for me and you destroyed it. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And he says, hey, wait a minute. Did I take your plant? Did you grow this plant? Was it by your power and ability? Have I stolen something from you, Jonah? Would you have had the plant without my giving of it to begin with? Right? Jonah didn't make the plant. He didn't grow the plant. He wasn't the origin of the plant. And yet he is deeply invested in the survival of the plant. Why? What is he accusing God here of? Of being wrong. Of being evil. Of being unjust. But notice what God says. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? Here Jonah says, God, you're unjust. And he says, Jonah, your finger's on the scale. Notice the contrast here. One little plant in a great city full of people. And so he says, they deserve to die, but the plant deserves to live. Right? Even the most committed, environmentally friendly activist of today would have a hard time making an equivalency of that of this level, right? One plant 
or 120,000 people. Right. He catches Jonah in his logic and he says, come on now. But why is Jonah so committed to the plant? Because he benefits. Right? That's what I mean when I say his finger is on the scale. He wants God to be just when it serves Jonah. And he wants God to be merciful when it serves Jonah. That's the problem. Everyone else in the book is willing to let God be God, but Jonah wants the reins, and he wants it to always turn up in his favor. And let me remind you that that's not because Jonah is just and right. He is a disobedient cover, uh, covenant breaker. He is somebody who needs and has received God's mercy, but he doesn't want it for anyone else. Not if it moves in the way. And the truth is, there's another plant that's implied by this whole thing. It's also one Jonah didn't plant. It's the nation of Israel. That's God's vine. He miraculously brought it out. He cared for it. It is his. It belongs to him. Is it not in his just decision to decide when it deserves to be judged? Is it not his just decision to bring about the consequences as he sees fit? If Jonah answers no, it's not, then who is he to condemn Nineveh? See, this is the problem. Disobedience is innately and inherently here in the book of Jonah and all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, self-enthronement. It says, I will be God. I will decide what is right. I will pursue my will and therefore rejects God, rejects his view of what's right, rejects his will. That's the issue here. And notice here, verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Okay, so the first thing he says here is there's a whole lot of people. And then the second he says, and these 120,000 of them don't know their right hand from their left. This means one of two things. In the book of Isaiah, this is used to refer to a child who hasn't learned right from wrong yet. Okay? So maybe he's saying, will you just think of all the innocent children? That would make sense to us. That would even appeal to us. It's one of the things we wrestle with, with God's indiscriminate judgment, is how it plays out on the children of those who are culpable. Right? But here, God cares. He sees. He asks. He pities. But it may even be more than that. It may be here the 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left are not the innocent children, but the Ninevites themselves that are so caught up in their idolatry and their deception, they don't even know. And that's a reasonable understanding because when Jonah goes in and says, that's it, you got 40 days and God's shutting the whole thing down, they respond. They're surprised. They're like, oh, man, we got to get our acts together, right? It's not like Jonah. It doesn't take a lot of convincing. There's no arguing. There's no compromise. They just respond. But also notice it says, and also much cattle. Does God care about animals? Absolutely. But it's hard not to read that as being a reference to the plant again, right? Well, maybe this will get you, Jonah. You care so much about that plant. How about the cows? Right? It, it, it's almost funny, and I think it's supposed to be. But I want you to notice one last thing that I love about this book here. 
that's the end. The last statement in the book of Jonah isn't a statement at all. It's a question. And it's a question on the lips of God that's posed to Jonah. But why does the story end there? Two reasons I would suggest to you. One is because the question isn't just for Jonah, it's for us. And so here, the Hebrew storyteller leaves the point of the story in our laps. It has to be responded to. Are you right to be angry is a question that God wants to send home with you tonight. That's how it's written in the book. But the second thing that I think is interesting about this ending of the story, go back over it and recognize how much of this is not publicly witnessed. We know Jonah's conversation that he has in the wilderness with God. How is it that the story becomes scripture? Who is the author of the book of Jonah? I would suggest to you that Jonah is. I would suggest to you that he may sit in this, angry, or in this anger for 40 days or maybe 40 years, but eventually it sinks in to the degree that he humbly presents himself not as some self-righteous deserving a special treatment, Jonah, but as the disobedient prophet who couldn't get it, Jonah, and lays it out. Okay. And so I would suggest to you that this isn't just a story about the God who pities Nineveh. This is the story about the God who pities Jonah and who is so persistent and patient with Jonah that he walks him through this whole process knowing that it's hard to kick against the goads, knowing that although Jonah needs to repent, that repentance and change is possible and committed to that end. It's a story not just of a disobedient prophet, but a tremendously committed and gracious God. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm reminded of the story you told of the man who was in great debt to his master. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, never possible to repay it, and his master just forgave him. But a few days later, he came across a friend who owned him a few hundred dollars, and he throttled him by the neck. And he said, you'll repay me every cent, and if you don't, you're going into the debtor's prison. And Jesus, you labeled that as being an inconsistency that doesn't recognize the true nature of our salvation. That either salvation is freely given and therefore undeserved, and therefore freely offered to those even who it wouldn't be convenient for us, even for those we judge unworthy, even for those we count among our enemies. The problem is not that we are a people committed to mercy and grace and have to convince you. The problem is that we have to be convinced to, like the king of Nineveh, get off the throne of our hearts and repent in sackcloth and ashes and and identify you as king of kings and lord of lords. Identify you as God. Surrender our right and our righteousness, and our doorman position to determine who is worthy of your salvation. 
We thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for the places where it parallels our own lives, where we can look back and, like Jonah, with thanksgiving, say, yes, you have saved us. But we also thank you, Lord, that you were committed to save us to the very core of our being and not just spare us from the consequence of sin, but uproot its reign in our heart as well. And I don't care if it takes a hot wind or the belly of a whale to do so, Lord. We just pray that you would continue that work. We pray this in your name. Amen.